am very excited tonight because for this episode of Interior Integration for Catholics, episode 119, I have a dear colleague, a dear friend of mine, Dr. Peter Martin. Dr. Peter Martin is a clinical psychologist in Lincoln, Nebraska. And interesting fun fact, he and I did our level one IFS training together. And it was it was a blast to be able to do that. Actually, I felt a great degree of comfort because I was actually going with my dear friend, Dr. Peter Martin, we were going to go together. And that way, that way, you know, if it was too woo woo, or if it was too crazy or whatever, I would have somebody to bounce those ideas off of. And so it's great fun now, so many years later to have Dr. Peter Martin with us in this episode where we're discussing narcissism. So Dr. Peter, I just want to wish you the warmest welcome. Super excited to have you with us tonight. Hey, it's great to be with you again, Peter. I'm glad you brought that up with level one because it was definitely a comfort having you <laughs> with <laughs> instead of exploring a whole new model and getting into the depths. So yeah, it's great, great to see what's happened since that time. Good to be with you. Well, so what the plan is tonight is for Dr. Peter Martin and I to just have a conversation about narcissism to discuss the last episode. The one that was just released, that's episode 118, where we're talking about the best of psychological and human formation resources, looking at narcissism from the single kind of unified personality model, primarily a psychodynamic or psychoanalytic model. We'll talk about that. And then we really want to open this up to whatever questions you have and whatever concerns you know that you've had in your own life about this things that you're willing to share with us as we record this podcast so we are recording this live on august 7th and this episode is going to be released on monday august 21st so i'm just really curious peter when you hear the word narcissism what what comes up for you like what what springs up for you inside when when you hear that word so for me, like the image that actually comes to mind is Narcissus, you know, the guy that kind of looked at himself in the pool and <laughs> fell in love. <laughs> and that became kind of the general approach that he used to, you know, relating to other people and so forth. So that is actually the first image that comes to mind. Also, it brings to mind some of my experiences, unfortunately, and I don't say this with all sports and athletics, but I, it, that is the experience I had. As I was working through my career in sports, you know, through grade school and high school and beyond. So those are the first things that come to mind, but not positive sentiments. <laughs> it wasn't something that, uh, you know, that, I, that I'd like to share necessarily with my kids and have them experience the same thing. I did, but, uh, but, it, but it is something that it does stick with you. Like when you encounter someone that has those kind of features, they, they kind of stick with you a bit and, and, you, and you remember them. Mm-hmm. Often folks do not recognize when they are connecting with somebody, relating with somebody that has strong narcissistic features or has what a what might be called the narcissistic personality style or even a narcissistic personality disorder. And one of the things that we had just that I had been thinking about as I thought about what did not go into episode 118 is this question of can narcissistic styles, personality styles, are they amenable to treatment? 
are they, you know, are they treatable? You know, that's a huge question. And so I just, I'm curious about kind of what your take on is on that. I think I may know, but you know, I might be able to guess, but I'm really curious about what you would say about that, because that's a question that comes up a lot. Yeah. And I think we probably would agree with this. You know, I think, I think both of us would say that there is potential for change. And when I think of change, I think of frequency, intensity, and duration. So how often does that narcissistic part or entitled part show up? We're hoping that it'll decrease in intensity, frequency, and duration, and maybe maybe even change even further than that to, you know, to, to more humble. Um, I, I, you know, to answer that question, though, I think it, it is important to know that all of us at some level, at some time of the day, or maybe once a week or something like that, have kind of some narcissistic tendencies. And the reason I bring that up is because the individuals that struggle with this kind of more severe forms of narcissistic PD, um, they're more kind of extreme levels of what some of us struggle with to some extent. So you'll see this in the spiritual tradition, the Catholic uh, moral and spiritual tradition. Um, you see Pope John Paul II, for instance, saying, if you're not loving someone, you're using them. Mm. And that's kind of what narcissistic PDs, individuals that struggle with that profile, let's say, or those kind of extreme parts, they have this tendency to use others more as a narcissistic extension and for their self-esteem issues. I, I recall a person who I spoke with that said she thought this other individual was narcissistic. And I said, why? And she said, because he told her one time, if you can't trust another person, then you can use him. Right. So the idea is that there's a lack of trust. There's a self-esteem issue. And so if you can't have connection and trust with another person, then just use them for personal gain at some level. But yes, I do think that um, narcissism is a type of functioning that can change over time. Mm -hmm. That's been my experience. Sometimes, uh, you know, I've seen mental health professionals make the claim that narcissists are beyond help, you mm -hmm. know, that or that persons with narcissistic personality disorder uh, simply can't be treated. And that that saddens me. Uh, and also, for some of my parts, gets me angry because parts will say just maybe you haven't had luck treating folks with narcissistic styles, but that doesn't mean they're not treatable yet. Yeah, but you have to go about it in a way that understands the underlying issues, because they are not what they seem like on the surface. And I think we've come a long way in the last hundred years, you know, since this has started to be really studied as a clinical phenomenon. And especially in the last 20 years with an appreciation of those underlying dynamics of, of shame and the fear of being humiliated. So. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, Peter, I, I, I do agree that things can change for the better for these individuals, um, you know, and, and even within the church's history, for instance, uh, I'm thinking most people probably on uh, are familiar with St. Ignatius of Loyola. I was uh, on retreat at one point and I was I picked up a book by Father William Meissner. For those who are wondering who that is, he's a Jesuit priest that has uh, is a psychoanalyst. Mm. And, and he wrote a biography of St. Ignatius of Loyola. And if I were to ask you, Peter, what do you, how do you think he diagnosed St. Ignatius <laughs> or the conversion experience? What would be your guess? <laughs> I would imagine if he was going to diagnose St. Ignatius from afar, he would have diagnosed him as a narcissist. You got it. Yep. Yeah. And as a psychoanalyst, 
is in particular a phallic narcissist. <laughs> a phallic true. narcissist, yeah, yeah, which would be the grandiose or overt narcissist, right? Um, exactly. And and that makes sense too, you know, given some of his history, his desire for fame and glory, you know, in the military career and so forth. But I've also heard, I can't remember where I read this, but that people at the beginning people at the beginning of St. Ignatius' life would have no doubt that his that his temperament was choleric. But mm. um, but at the end of his life, people assumed that he was phlegmatic. You yeah. know, so it's really interesting to sort of see the the change there. Yeah, it, it and it wasn't without a significant few events in his life to bring about the change. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it took God's grace and a cannonball. Right? Cannonball, yep. Sometimes. Sometimes the uh, the interventions that God chooses to use, what He allows in His passive will to happen, can be pretty severe. Yes, uh, and, and it was for him. Yeah, yeah, he, he had to rebreak his leg after they had put it in a mm-hmm. cast. I mean, this this poor guy. So it took a lot for him to change. But yeah, so there are examples of people that have changed. But but more recently, like you're saying, they're, they're, we're noting that they're that this is becoming more and more of an opinion that you'll see in psychology, that this is, there is potential for this kind of growth. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because one thing I didn't talk a lot about in the last episode was kind of the two main ways of mm-hmm. treating someone with strong narcissistic dynamics. And this was from my a psychoanalyst supervisor when I, when I really started in clinical practice um, and he said, there's basically two ways you can do this. One is a very gentle, you know, very gentle way of really trying to help the person with the narcissistic dynamics feel safe, feel heard really through the, in, the relationship with that person help to just try to help him unfold, you know, and kind of grow. That's the first way. And the second way is to depth charge the narcissist defenses is to kind of blow up those narcissistic defenses. But that's really, really risky because the idea is that, you know, the Phoenix will rise from the ashes, but the Phoenix doesn't always rise from the ashes. You can see sometimes the narcissistic dynamics very much harden. And I think that's what you're seeing when our Lord goes right at the narcissistic defenses of the Pharisees. You know, you can see that, some of those Pharisees actually converted, uh, the majority hardened. Um, and so when I think about that, when I think about biblical characters that have narcissistic traits, not only Absalom, which I mentioned in the last podcast episode, but also the Pharisees. Yeah, no, that's an interesting take on that. Yeah, I, I, I definitely can see those kind of features. And you'll see that with some narcissistic profiles is that perfectionistic kind of thing, right? This mm-hmm. chronic criticism of self or others, but usually it's manifested as of others kind of thing. Um, I, I think sometimes too, Peter, about the parable of the prodigal son uh, mm-hmm. in terms of one that kind of has certain narcissistic features is the older brother. Because <laughs> the older brother had a lot of perfectionism, you know, his younger brother didn't quite fit. And even though, and even though the father father was very warm and receptive to his return, the older brother was critical, not just of the younger brother, the prodigal himself, but of the father for taking him back. So you see that kind of as an extension of what happened with Jesus and the Pharisees in that particular passage. Right, right. And so there you see the modeling of the gentleness of the father with the older son, 
you know, you see that modeling of the the warmth and the explanation and in the and the affirmation, all I have is yours. You know, he tells he tells the older son. And and sometimes you don't have the luxury of a lot of time. So I'm not I, I don't want anybody to take me as sort of like being critical of our Lord for trying yeah. to depth charge the, the the Pharisees' defenses. He knew what he was doing. But again, free will is still operative, even with these dynamics. So yeah, I agree. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Yeah. And so maybe with the Lord, he's he's really interested in making a point here, not just for what's going on in that particular scenario, but also for other generations to see how he is very different than that narcissistic approach they take. He's very humble in his approach. That's right. Yeah. Well, he says, learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart. Yeah. And there's a difference between be, between being narcissistic and being bold. You know, St. Teresa of Avila, for example, is one of the saints that I admire for her boldness, but that yeah. boldness connected to humility and, and paired up with humility. So, yeah, I like that too. It, it reminds me of um, some of the literature I've seen on kind of servant leadership. We'll talk about humility plus um, the great sold or the um, uh, mag- magnanimity. So, if you have the complementary kind of profile of magnanimity plus humility, there is this boldness that goes with it. So you don't have to be this kind of self-denigrating uh, <laughs> kind of false humility type of person, but you can have both that, that great soldness plus humility at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I want to turn to a question that was, that was given to us, that was emailed to us earlier today. And with this, we'll open up, we'll open up the Q and a aspect of, of our time together this is a little long, but I think it's worth reading in its entirety because it brings up so many dynamics that we've been talking about. So this, this listener says, for years, I have covertly tried to read about narcissism, looking for some explanation of or help with relational dynamics with my husband. I have a distinct memory of my husband talking to my dad over dinner one night, and the entire conversation, a long one, was a monologue about how great he was with my dad agreeing. We once went to a funeral for the wife of an old friend who is a poor soul. And afterward, the drive home was listening to him and his brother talk about how honored that poor family was to have had them present and how good it was of them to have taken time from their schedule to show up. It was nauseating. These instances reflect the attitude typical of his family. There's also a strong culture of lying in that family, which they call, quote, stretching, end quote. Things have been improving lately, and so I've forgotten some intense things, but listening to your podcast brings it all back. It makes me feel crazy because suddenly I'm not sure if he is the narcissist or if it's me. During these really crazy days, I spend time trying to verify objectively that what I seem to observe was true. For instance, one of my kids might make a comment, and I was able to grab onto that and say, aha, they see it too. It isn't just me. But still, I do wonder if I'm the one with the problem. Is this a typical pattern? Or am I the one with the problem? How do I know? And as an interesting side note, I have never discussed this with my husband, but last year we were at a Marian shrine and our lady came to him and told him that she would be the one to affirm him in so many words. I was shocked because the self-awareness of needing to be appraised could only have come from a divine origin. He uses those words now and knows that he has a need to be praised that is not healthy. So, a lot there to unpack. I thought I would just give this all to you. I know you had a chance to review this before we talked. What 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 seems significant 
for for our audience to share about this as you hear the story from this listener and so i did just briefly have a chance to, to review <laughs> but uh to clarify um but yeah no a couple of things come out the confusion that this this person has on whether or not it's the husband or her that's the narcissist that's such a complicated thing it, it, you know as as i do some marital therapy work and when i hear one spouse talk about what happened versus another spouse talking about what happened separately i do feel sometimes we're i don't know which planet i'm on so <laughs> it gets so confusing and part of the reason it is is if he is narcissistic there is a tendency for the narcissist to put the blame on her as if she is right mm -hmm. so and if she is that narcissistic extension that isn't meeting his needs or his wants maybe it's a better way to put it for kind of the self-esteem fix then she will now become devalued quickly in his eyes and if she communicates the concern to him then what will happen is he might accuse her of being selfish or whatever so i i, I can sense like um, how confusing that is in that relationship for her so i i feel for her in that in that dynamic so that was one thing that really stood out to me what i what i really stood out to me so thank you for that i and i and i agree right it can be very disorienting to be in a relationship with someone who needs to use you as a for narcissistic supply you know to to, to meet those deep needs uh, we're going to be talking about that in episode 122. I'm anticipating that episode 122 will be about gaslighting. I'm going to discuss gaslighting from a, a Catholic perspective, what that is. But the thing that struck me the most out of this passage was near the end, where there was this awareness that this is about affirmation, and that the affirmation that's needed is the affirmation from, from God and Our Lady, especially from God our Father, and Mary, our mother, our spiritual parents, our primary parents. There is no thing in the created world that will fill the, the need we have to be loved, to be cherished, to be treasured, to be delighted in by our Lord and our lady. And so that's what really struck me the most. And and I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there and I can't actually evaluate, you know, was something of divine origin or something of angelic origin. But this fits so well, this idea that if indeed there's narcissistic dynamics going on here, the need for affirmation is where we need to be actually looking. But the difficulty is that the vulnerability required to take in the love of God can be so threatening to folks that struggle with narcissistic dynamics who have a strong protection up against that vulnerability. Yeah, I, I agree. I, that does stand out to me too. Like this, this craving, it, it, it can feel for some narcissistic profiles or parts that have that, it can feel very much like this drug, this affirmation drug. Mm -hmm. And if they don't get that quick hit or that fix, from the other person, then the other person now becomes small and unimportant and, a, and an object of criticism. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the approval that they need that would be healthy is not so much the external approval, like you're saying, it's more that kind of divine kind of approval, that connection with God that can provide for them those needs that they, they have been longing for, but just haven't gotten in a consistent fashion. Kind of reminds me of a, um, 
um, you know, this kind of need of the other person to provide. It reminds me of uh, a couple of quotes that the best relationships are those in which the love for the other is greater than the need for the other. <laughs> and then a second one, this one's by Brennan Manning. He says, you are loved just as you are, not as you should be, mm -hmm. because you're never going to be as you should be, especially, you know, this side of the curtain. Mm -hmm. And so that underlying affirmation to be loved is, is actually a good thing, that desire to be loved, but to be loved as you are. Because in the narcissistic history, especially like you brought out in your podcast, that wasn't the case, generally speaking. It wasn't the case that, that you could just be as you are. You would be evaluated as you are, but not necessarily loved and so forth. Well, thank you. I, yeah, that makes that makes total sense to me. I think about it along very similar lines. And so what I'd like to do now is to just open this up to anyone that has questions, anyone that would like to, to ask those out loud or that would like to submit a question to us via the chat function. I'm really curious. Let me put it this way. I'm really curious about what you're curious about with narcissism. So just super interested to hear about like what what's on your minds, what questions come up, what kinds of things would you like to know more about? So Dr. Peter Martin and I, we're standing by, we're ready to hear from you. So let us know. Okay, we've got one coming in through the chat. So let's start with that. So this one says, I appreciate the previous listener's question, but it sounds like she and her husband share a Catholic faith. My greatest challenge when faced with narcissism is with those who are in my life, my relationships such as family, who do not recognize God, and thus it becomes very difficult to even share with them with love because they do not believe in a God who could love them for simply being themselves. What can we say to them? So my first reaction to this question, which I think is a great one, how do you work with somebody? How do you love somebody that doesn't acknowledge God and doesn't acknowledge God as love? And so I, what do you say to them is what our what our listener is asking. And I would say, first of all, I probably wouldn't say anything. I would think more about it in terms of being with the other person. Many people have have parts that are really turned off on God. They have really negative God images. There's been ways that they've experienced authority, ways that they've experienced father figures, authority figures that have turned them off uh, to the idea of God as father. And so as St. Francis of Assisi said, you know, preach the gospel, use words when necessary. And then I would be looking to what goods can they recognize and accept? This is really an attuned way of, of finding what kind of common ground you have to that person. What kinds of things can they accept that you can offer them? And sometimes that's not, that might not seem like very much, but if folks are willing to allow a little bit of love in, it can have a powerfully transformative effect. And at the beginning, that probably means in a case like this, that you're not discussing God, you're not bringing up God, that you're, um, that you're demonstrating the love of God through your interactions, that you 
are, um, in a sense, being that conduit of God's love to the person. What I'm just, but I'm curious what you would add to that, Dr. Peter. Yeah, no, I, I like the I like the trajectory you're going there because you know you can imagine someone who is struggling with God or not interested in God and so forth, and um, their history of talking to people that are theistic, right? Talking mm-hmm. to people that believe in God, they're probably used to the standard response of "This is why you should believe in God." <laughs> this is, and so, if you if you add yourself to that long undistinguished list of people probably what will happen is they might just kind of turn a deaf ear to it to some extent. But if you turn to them more in a, in a stance of curiosity, like you were saying, kind of a stance of getting to know them and mm-hmm. understanding them, hearing their story, hearing, hearing what they have to say, well, a couple of things can happen. One is you're going to get that connection, which is going to be pivotal for anything you talk about God with them. And secondly, you can do a bit of an assessment. Right. You can you can to some extent hear in their languaging how open they actually are to hearing anything about that to begin with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, my my Irish grandmother had told me a story one time. She said uh, there was a, a, a priest she had spoken to who said. Uh, he said, I will drive clear across town to talk with someone about God who is open to hearing what I have to say. He said, but I will not walk across this room to someone that will just shut me down. Mm, So mm. the idea is you get a, you get a bit of a test, a little bit of a litmus to see how open that person might be. If they're not open, that's their season of life. Who knows if another opportunity might show up in the future though, but for now let's make a connection and get to know their side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so what I would say is, yeah, definitely along those lines, what goods can they accept? And yeah, so many times it, we're going to have to go back to prayer. We're going to have to go back to, to, to making sacrifices for folks, allowing grace to work. Remember, not everybody is going to respond to love. If you think about the terror that folks with strong narcissist dynamics have at a deep level of no longer existing, of being annihilated. I mean, it's frightening. It's terrifying for these folks to tolerate being loved as they are. They would have to give up their primary ways of coping in the world in order to let that love in. So I think if we're trying to show them that love, we need to recognize how high the stakes are. This isn't just people that are being selfish or self-absorbed, these are folks that are experiencing an existential crisis as to whether or not I'm going to leave this the, the pseudo-security of my coping mechanisms, the ways that I've learned to make it in the world in favor of this brand new idea of vulnerability, this brand new idea that I could be loved as I am, this brand new idea of letting you into my life. And I think sometimes because they come across as often abrasive or or large and in charge or or grandiose, it can be so deceiving, it can be so misleading to take that at face value. I have a question here that someone posted on the chat. It says, good evening from the UK. Question. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> Hello, UK. 
what are your views on ad orientum, theocentric worship, and versus populum, sorry about my Latin, anthropocentric worship? Could either affect or impact narcissistic traits in groups or individuals, um, such as clergy or laity? See here. So I can say that again. What are your views on ad orientum, theocentric worship, and versus populum, which is anthropocentric worship, could either affect or impact narcissistic traits in groups or individuals, such as clergy or laity? Uh, Peter, I might float that. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, I don't think it matters much. To be really honest with you, I don't because sometimes there's this sense that if we had the liturgical, you know, the liturgical stuff right, that that would have a beneficial effect and would resolve these sorts of issues. I think in certain circles, you can have a, a kind of spiritual narcissism. I hinted at this in the previous one, and it can be uh, expressed through the need for a perfect worship, you know, and so sometimes that can come up theocentric versus anthropocentric worship of course obviously we don't want anthropocentric worship where we're worshiping ourselves i think some of the modern liturgical songs i wouldn't call them hymns their songs can be very focused on on the self there was a recent article in the new oxford review about that but i i'm concerned when we start to take the focus on narcissistic dynamics outside and start attributing it to cultural factors or social factors or community factors i think the focus really needs to be on what's going on in the internal dynamics you know because that's something that plays right into the into the narcissist game the external environment has to change for me to be all right and i think we really need to take ownership of our our own dynamics we need to take real responsibility for that and to not say things like well if the liturgy were better or if my parish were better or other types of things like that or if the architecture was better that then i would be in a better place remember all things work together for good for those who love the lord so if you happen to be in an, in an area where the liturgical rubrics aren't being followed very closely but that's the one mass you can go to god's going to make good happen from that mass as well so yeah, Dr. Peter, I would I would concur with everything you said there. Um, I think a person who has narcissistic tendencies can make just about any venture narcissistic, right? So let's say a person is interested in developing virtue and their focus is to try to in increase their you know eating habits and you know, nutrition intake and things like that. And a narcissistic person or a profile that individual would be prone to turning that into a self-glamorous kind of approach. It would be about, oh, look how good my body's going to look and how amazing I'm going to be. And all the people that will worship me if I, if I have this appearance or whatever, and they'll turn it into something that could actually, that would actually be the opposite of virtue in that effort. So to, to Peter's point, you know, I, I think that those efforts Sure, some of the context plays a role, but but it does seem like you can make just about any effort, including virtue, into a narcissistic venture. Yes. I can pour, you know, I can flog myself in, in public <laughs> or pour ashes on my forehead, you know, those kinds of things to make it more dramatic and, and so forth. More about me than the actual growth. I want to just create a space. Does anybody would, would like to come up and just ask a question out loud? Would that be, can we do that? All right, excellent. Claire, do ask.
Hi, Dr. Peter Malinowski and Dr. Peter Martin. Thank you for having this opportunity to bring to our awareness about narcissism. I do have a question and I was interested to know what you both thought. Has the church or professional counseling, clinical mental health addressed the link between narcissism and spiritual abuse? And then how do religious members or subjects recover if a superior with narcissistic tendencies and behavior is removed from an organized religion or community? Or can those religious members or subjects recover if the superior who has a narcissistic behavior or tendency is not removed? Uh, if you want me to repeat my question, I could. And I'm just interested to know what your, your thoughts were on that. Narcissism, um, spiritual abuse. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I think the um, International Cultic Studies Association, ICSA, ICSA, is an organization that I've been uh, involved with for 30 years. And I am one of, or maybe their top go-to person when it comes to reports of a monastery or a convent or some other Catholic group that's gone off the rails. And so I've been in, I've had the privilege, I've had the experience of being invited into a, a number of religious communities where there's been serious allegations of, 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 of abuse, spiritual abuse and harm. And almost always, you will see very strong narcissistic dynamics in the leaders of those communities. So there is a, a direct connection between spiritual abuse and narcissistic dynamics in religious communities in, in the church. And that's really unfortunate. The response in my in my experience, the response is very mixed. It depends on who is an authority, who are the local authorities, who are the the ordinaries, uh, who are the the leaders of the religious communities, the uh, the abbots or the the regional superiors, the the district superiors, as far as how that gets handled. What I've noticed over and over again is that there is a lack of of awareness of these human formation dynamics, a lack of awareness of what goes on in the psychological and spiritual realm. There's a lot of spiritualizing, a lot of spiritual bypassing that can happen. And frankly, I've been disappointed in a lot of what I've seen in the ways that church leaders have handled these kinds of situations. And I think one of the things that's going to come out more and more in the next few years is how can we more successfully, more effectively as a church care for those that have been harmed in religious communities or in religious organizations. There's a book that I recommend called Narcissism Goes to Church uh, by Chuck DeGroat, uh, which I think has, now he's not Catholic, but uh, that has a lot, I think a lot of good information about how you understand those dynamics. Thank you, Dr. Peter Malinowski. What would, yeah, what would you add? What would you add, dear Peter Martin? I, I really don't have much that. I, I think you covered most of the basic things I would have said. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, but it, it is problematic. And you, I mean, you'll see it at different levels with clericalism, you know, is, is a term that comes out a fair amount with priests that struggle with this and how that might uh, cause problems. But, but what you'll see is, at least in that particular area, you'll see an emphasis in some ways just on kind of elevating the self but then the pastoral sense like that pastoral care for your for the, sh the sheep is not really taking taking place and so then what happens is it kind of uh, in some ways can fragment the flock 
or you can have these kind of um, groups of people in the church that just really uh, uh, admire this particular priest. But either way, it's, it's problematic because it doesn't seem open to, to uniting and bringing the flock together. Uh, but no, I, I would, I would uh, support everything else that Peter said as well. It's a lot of confusion that can happen because there can be a lot of idealization of narcissistic leaders. They pull for that idealization. And and it can it can seem like that's the right thing to do because you know if I'm in a religious community I owe a, you know I owe obedience I have a vow of obedience and so forth, and so if there's poor human formation among the uh, formators among the, those in authority can wreak a lot of harm on the on the members of a community and I've seen you know entire communities fragment blow up and uh, and the consequences can be really really severe, so. At some point, I want to do a whole series on spiritual abuse. It's not going to be in the near future, but that is such a that is a question that has been so um, so misunderstood because those on the spiritual side of things don't necessarily understand the psychological aspects of it, and those on the psychological side of things don't often understand the spiritual dimensions of it. So it's something where um, there can be a lot of I think a lot of room for for greater understanding that can lead to more compassionate and more ordered care for folks that have been uh, that have been harmed. Thank you, Dr. Peter Melanowski and Dr. Peter Martin. Uh, it's a topic that hasn't um, had much attention to and research, so I greatly appreciate your thorough information. Helps a lot. Well, let's take a look at some of these others. Um, what makes it difficult for a person with narcissistic personality disorder to receive the love of God? What makes it difficult for a person with narcissistic personality disorder to receive the love of God? Yeah, I can I can take that here first. So one of the things that's really interesting, if you look at the research on attachment to God, for instance, one of the things you'll find is that there's a particular attachment that seems to be the least connected to God, and that's called dismissing attachment. And so dismissing attachment is connected or associated with overt narcissism, kind of grandiose overt narcissism in the research. And what you'll see is that those individuals at a natural level generally keep people at arm's distance so they don't feel comfortable getting too close to others in a, in a, in a let's say, an intimate relationship or an attachment-based relationship. And that natural level kind of experience that was developed over the course of, let's say, their childhood with the parents or, or later on, now that kind of is the way they relate to God, is that they, they see him as kind of distant or just they, he doesn't exist. G.K. Chesterton says, um, atheism is less a denial of God than it is a defiance of God. And so if you take that kind of defiance and distancing and maybe mistrust, because you'll see guys like Christopher Hitchens, for instance, that will say God is some type of internal North Korean dictator that invades my every thought, my every feeling, my every experience. And so they see God as kind of this boss that's too close and tries to impose himself too much. And that's the experience. And so I remember when I read that about uh, the way Hitchens described him, I said, wow, that doesn't, that doesn't feel anything like my experience of God. He doesn't <laughs> feel like he's invasive. He feels like someone that loves me and that I want to be close to and intimate with and connected to. So I think that that is a big obstacle to, to someone that has uh, maybe kind of dismissing attachment attributes or narcissistic kind of grandiose profile. 
you know, if you look at the flip side of that in the attachment research, the preoccupied attachment actually is associated with covert narcissism. So this would be someone that has kind of high expectations and demands of others, but may not voice them very much. But if you look at their internal kind of monologue, you'll see that it does have narcissistic features. And what'll happen is that individual typically doesn't feel very connected and soothed by God. They can petition God, they can ask God for help in prayer, but then allowing God to be close without the fear that God will not be there for them in a time of need makes it complicated for them to feel secure and trusting toward God. Um, so I, I think those two types of narcissistic profiles um, can find it difficult to having intimacy with God, as well as other people. But but in this case, God is the person was was questioning. Well, I, there's another question here since you've brought up this the attachment, the detachment questions, and and you know more about attachment theory than I do. I, I want to hear how you handle this one. How does narcissism impact attachment in children and then later in adulthood? So if you could just expand out on your answer to that previous question to include how does narcissism impact attachment in children and later in adulthood? It's a great question, you know, and I'll throw in some parts language here, just some some things as I was reading a bit for this particular podcast. It, what what happens in what happens in the relationship, let's say this this developing mind, this individual uh, child who's connecting with their their parent, who is, let's say, narcissistic and is using that child, not loving, but using that child as a narcissistic extension. Uh, what happens is, the child doesn't really attach to the self of the parent. And that's kind of important because some attach, some IFS theorists, for instance, will say that an attachment that's, that's uh, insecure is because they're attaching not to the self of the parent, but to a part of the parent. And so in this case with a narcissistic parent, the child is probably attaching to a protector part that's overcompensating for a sense of, you know, low self-esteem or a shame or something like that. And then what happens in that kind of dyadic relationship then is that the, the parent is not really pulling for the self of the, of the, of the child in that relationship. It's actually pulling for some kind of protector part from the child. So to give an example, if the parent is narcissistic, let's say those wounds kind of show in the way it manifests in kind of expecting too much or hypercritical of the child or something, then what happens is they don't just want a response that's assertive. They want that, that child to rescue them out of their own insecurity. And so if that child learns that the way that they can attach or at least get some kind of connection with the parent is to respond in a way that overcompensates, that does too much, and then they get the smile from the parent or whatever, then that nurtures this kind of um, reactivity and it nurtures the, the, the reinforcement or development of a protector part in that particular child. And then the cycle continues, right? And so, so what happens is this narcissism can continue in the next generation and then maybe even beyond. But ultimately, it turns into an insecurity and a struggle with intimacy. One of the things uh, you had mentioned, Nancy McWilliams, Dr. Malinowski, in your podcast that was just released today, you had mentioned Nancy McWilliams. And one of the things that she says 
is that people with, uh, I think it's neurotic level. No, I think it's borderline level of personality organization or, or, or severity of uh, personality, uh, borderline and psychotic level. They don't have the capacity for intimacy. They just, they don't have that integrity or that, that unity of self, that personal unity to be able to find that union that's real to be able to have that union with others, or in this case, a parent with a child. And so this cycle of dysfunction continues into the next generation. One of the things that she brings up in the chapter on narcissism is that individuals who have been raised by parents with prominent narcissistic tendencies and have been treated as narcissistic extensions of, of the parent who are kind of like in orbit around the parent's needs often develop narcissistic tendencies themselves. And it, so, yeah. And that fits, that fits too, because um, going back to that research and attachment. So the, the idea is that there is a level of entitlement that you see with, with all types to some extent of attachment and security. You'll see that surfacing. Um, some of the researchers in this are like Philip Shaver, uh, Mika Lenser, the two, two people that are kind of prominent. But they have found that <clears throat> both attachment anxiety and avoidance are associated with two kind of key things. One, a global sense of psychological entitlement, as well as two, a strong entitlement urges in close relationships. So global and then specific in attachment relationships. That's kind of important because at some level, what you have within security is like a, a limited sense of peace. There's a kind of heightened level of distress. And so if these individuals are more commonly or more uh, apt to kind of leave their window of tolerance, then what happens is they're going to be going into survival mode more frequently. So fight, flight, freeze. And the language that you'll see in some of this autonomic nervous system, you know, kind of research and literature, you'll see them talking about if you're in survival mode, fight, flight, freeze, it's self-survival. Whereas if you're in the window of tolerance, which is the optimal kind of more peaceful range, they call that species survival. Ooh. So the species survival, I don't like that language, but we'll use <laughs> species survival, then allows this person a capacity, a greater capacity, capacity to love the other. Whereas the other approach, the survival is based more on fear. So those are fear-based relationships rather than kind of the love-based relationships. And you'll see that more with insecure attachment. So let's see. I've got I've got one here. Oh great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so does codependency often accompany a relationship between a narcissistic parent and his or her child? Does codependency often accompany a relationship between a narcissistic parent and his or her child? I, you know, <clears throat> One one of the things that stands out to me about a narcissistic parent is that the, the boundaries aren't the greatest <laughs> with children. And so if a, if, a, if a mother, let's just take the case of a mother, well, we'll say father this time, the case of a father, and let's say his relationship with his son gets enmeshed. And, you know, you might say that's an aspect of codependency. But let's say it gets enmeshed. <clears throat> now, that's not really the child's fault. Right. The child, the child is, is just attaching and kind of learning from the parent, uh, learning how to live morally and ethically, but also just how to be a, a, a male in this particular case. And, 
And so who does that fall on? Well, it falls on the parent, the father in this case, for not setting good boundaries and allowing the other person to not be a narcissistic extension, but allowing the other person to have viewpoints that differ, allowing the other person to kind of have feelings that are acceptable, that, that they can feel even if they might be different than the parent. Uh, one of the things you'll find sometimes in a narcissistic profile is uh, vocational discernment gets kind of interesting for a child. <laughs> because because what happens is it's really interesting. The child might be in a state of confusion about which direction or what state of life the, the person is called to do. But for some reason, the parent knows exactly what the child is called to. <laughs> mm -hmm. And oftentimes can tell them repeatedly what that what that person should be discerning and going towards. So yeah, it becomes complicated. Uh, but yeah, I do think codependency and kind of this enmeshment, for instance, can can be a part of a narcissistic relationship. A lot of it depends, I think, on what you mean by codependency. The, 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 the mom or the dad that's demonstrating a lot of narcissism needs the child functionally, needs the function of, of that the child can offer because children are so existentially dependent on their parents and they know it. Without their parents' attention, they won't survive. So the the bind that a child of a narcissistic parent is in is that I've I've got choices here and I'm going to, in most cases, attempt to conform myself to what my parents are demanding of me or I won't make it. And that leads to problems at three particular ages. And these are the moments of separation and individuation two, seven, six or seven, and then the early teenage years. Cause these are the moments when a child needs help from the parent to establish a separate identity, but that separate identity is going to mean that there's going to be some friction in the relationship. You know, the terrible twos, the six and seven year old who is now, you know, discovering that I can go to school where I have, you know, I can, I can actually function autonomously in the world. The teenager that's preparing for adulthood. These can be times where intentionally or often unintentionally children can wound their parents. And those wounds are felt particularly deeply. If the, uh, if that looks like the narcissistic supplies will no longer be regularly offered. And so there's often a lot of estrangement that can happen between children when they want to shuck off that dependency or an alternative response is to just never really grow up and separate and individuate, but to continue to serve the needs of the parent in a disordered way. So, and that's really confusing for children. It's one of the huge disadvantages of having a parent who struggles with a lot of narcissism. You know, one kind of follow-up there, I, I, I appreciate what you brought in there about those different ages and the challenges for, for parents and children in those stages. One of the things, going back to the codependency, um, you'll see a fair amount of kind of this um, role reversal or inversion of uh, the attachment relationship in those kind of relationships. Um, you'll see this kind of dynamic where the parents, going back to the boundaries struggle, the parent is more likely to disclose just way too much information <laughs> about their emotional struggles. They get way too open about the, let's say, the marital conflicts with their children. Let's say if the child's like age seven, for instance, you know, they'll, they'll talk about that. And even it can get kind of strange in the sense that it could even be physical affection 
starts to go a little too far. And so, yeah, so you run into this kind of challenge where, again, this becomes you child become uh, my need provider. Whereas if a parent as the attachment figure, that is not a relationship of equals. And it's not a relationship of codependency uh, uh, in a secure relationship. It's where the parent provides for the physical and emotional needs of the child and not vice versa. Right. That's that parentification uh, of children. Now your role is to meet my needs, says, you know, in the narcissistic parent. So, so yeah, and that could really do a number on kids can take a lot to get over that. And so, uh, and we have a question about that, that just kind of came in that I thought we could move in now. What tools and skills can a child be supported to develop if they have a parent with narcissistic tendencies, or does the child need to wait until they are an adult and seek psychotherapy? So what would you say to that? Like, so a lot of times you can see this in other families, you know, could be, you know, extended family of your own, or you could see it, you know, in, in church you know, down in the coffee and donuts after mass, you can see it on the playground. What kinds of things can, can we be thinking about that would help children who are in a situation like this to, to, to develop more normally? Let's say if you're an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent or, or something like that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. I, I, you know, so the idea is that these children have particular needs that are not being met because the, because the parent has such a focus on themselves that they're not quite sure how to meet these needs of the child in a consistent, reliable fashion or at all some cases, right? Mm -hmm. And so you might have a case of a child that just never felt safe. You know, they never felt safe their whole life consistently. They never felt seen and known, which is probably pretty common for a child that is being raised by a narcissistic parent. So one thing I would say is it would be helpful if that child could find some type of a mentor or like an adult figure that they could rely on. You'll see some people that will turn to a grandparent or they might turn to an aunt or an uncle or someone else that they can turn to to talk about these struggles and these confusing things that they're getting. So that would be one, one kind of strong recommendation is to kind of turn to them as, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't say a substitute kind of attachment figure, but someone they can turn to for those, some of those attachment needs would be an important function, important thing. You know, one of the things though, to remember is that if you as an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent or a friend or an extended relative or something like that, if you, if, if the narcissistic parent begins to believe that you're turning the child against them, you can expect a pretty strong reaction. You can expect a pretty strong reaction because again, if that parent, the narcissistic parent is looking at the child as a source of life as a source of life-giving affirmation that contributes to their existence and you are a threat to take that away, boy, you can, you can expect that there's going to be some, 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 some reaction to that. So one of the things I would add to what, uh, to what you just said, uh, Dr. Martin would be just to bear that in mind, you know, to kind of bear those, those broader, um, those broader family dynamics in mind. And remember that God in his, in his, in his permissive will allows these things to happen to children only to be able to draw greater good from them in the future. And so there are some folks that who with negative parenting actually seek out a deeper relationship with God as father and Mary as mother. Some of the God image 
uh, literature, the attachment to God literature, shows that there can be lower levels of motivation to seek out God as a, as a good father and Mary as a good mother. Oh, God is a good father. I don't think they looked at Mary as a good mother. Um, if your parents have been relatively good, you know, so there's sort of something paradoxical there about that. So, yeah, you know, it, that's a that's a good uh, um, kind of distinction there, uh, Dr. Malinowski. The idea that a mentor can actually amplify the reactions in the parents if they mm -hmm. don't pay attention to those protector parts of the parent. Right. So if, if that if they're kind of saying, hey, try this, try that, uh, niece, nephew, and it just actually increases the anger in the protector parts of the narcissistic person, that's going to be problematic, definitely. Uh, so always keep that in mind. Definitely. And we are going to have Dr. Jerry Crete uh, in, in mid-October to do a whole episode on how do you work on these family dynamics with narcissism. He's Many of you know him. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist. He's the co-founder of Souls and Hearts. So episode 123 in, in October, we will be having him on, on to, to answer all kinds of questions about family dynamics with that. But I wanted to recognize um, we have Michael that wants to, yeah, that's got a question for us. So I'm going to open the floor if you would ask your question, Michael. Yes, thank you very much. I just had a question. You described my ex-wife perfectly. <laughs> so as a divorced dad that's recognizing this within his children and trying to co-parent and be the good parent, what advice would you both offer? Would, would your advice still be the same or something different? Hmm. It really depends on the situation. Um, and it takes a lot of discernment to know how to navigate those tricky waters. So the first thing that I would recommend is that you have some professional eyes, some professional help to help you navigate this on your end of it. I mean, that would be my recommendation for anybody in that situation. Someone that, you know, comes to know you that can advocate for, you know, your best interest, uh, and that can help you to address those kinds of questions. Because the way that that plays out can take on a lot of different variations depending on the, the the circumstances the given situations there's not a one size fits all type of a, of approach there's not a protocol that you can execute against the oftentimes it's very difficult for divorced spouses to be able to offer anything that is not burdened by the history of the relationship, you know, because there's a whole lot of disappointed hopes and dreams that can go into marriages that have failed. And so often we need to rely on others to be able to reach, reach the spouse, unless you are, um, you have a, a particularly good relationship. So uh, if the divorce was especially messy, contentious, uh, the more that that's true, the more that external support's going to be going to be needed. It's also really important as a divorced parent, I would say, to not try to undermine or split or, or triangulate children against the other parent. Because if they sense that you're trying to do that, then again, it's likely that because of the, the need for, uh, for, for affirmation that there could be this intense polarization that happens. So, but I know that, uh, that uh, do your Dr. Peter Martin, you work with families more than I do. So I'm just curious if you have something that you would add to that or that you would uh, correct in that actually. So, <laughs> I, no, I don't think I would correct anything. Um, you know, 
when you were talking about this is a similar thing that you've noticed in your relationship and i don't know the specs and the details of which side of the attachment spectrum she might be on and that kind of thing one thing there, there's two things that came to mind though and and both of these are kind of kind of one, one has to do with a template for looking at what's going on and the second one has to do with kind of your own uh, personal kind of growth because this is a very complicated situation like you said and it just requires so much you know virtue and, and to be able to, to manage it but the first thing that comes to mind when there's a trauma in in a relationship and i don't know what happened i'm just going to float there float this out there for people when there's a trauma in a marriage or trauma is brought to marriage for instance the gottmans have noted john john gottman and his wife uh, julie i think's her name um, they actually have developed a different model for treating marital dysfunction if there's trauma in the marriage whether it's through something the husband or the wife has done, whether it's infidelity, whether it's like, you know, something with a major medical issue that, uh, that they had to work through or whatever, right? And so they, I, if I remember correctly, when we did this training, they had said that it's not uncommon when there's trauma in there that one of the spouses feels borderline and the other spouse feels narcissistic. And part of it has to do because of that deep, kind of abiding wound that gets triggered pretty quickly. And so people respond in kind of curious ways, like, you know, spouses respond in real curious ways when, when they have that kind of history. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing, I, I would encourage you, uh, you know, to, to Dr. Malinowski's point about uh, getting like a professional or third party involved. The level, like one of the best things that you can do as a father in terms of helping your children through this complicated situation that seems to be continuing if you know you said your spouse is struggling with things too is to really become a man of prayer a person that that has a deep spiritual life because you're going to need to draw upon the the sources of let's say god as an example that could provide this uh, example to you of how to respond and one of the things that you'll find is that curiosity and calm are two critical eight C's of dealing with your spouse in this situation. Like if you were to focus on how to inter interact with her, it would be, how can I maintain the calm of a St. Joseph and the curiosity of, well, I don't have anybody else to give it. Let's say St. Joseph, curiosity of St. Joseph here, to be able to, to, to display to not only the ch to your wife, but also the children, how to kind of maintain that in your relationship with her. Um, but sometimes there will need to be frank conversations about if you're seeing like egregious uh, boundary violations and things like that, there will that will probably require a third party professional to, to help with that. And I would just add to anybody in that situation to really pay attention to your own attachment needs and your own integrity needs, you know, to really have those grounded so that you can love a woman who might be the most difficult person in the world for you to love you know even if your marriage was um was uh you know if you have a decree of nullity and so there would never was a marriage uh there's still going to be a lot in raising minor children if you don't have a decree of nullity you know in the in the eyes of the church you're you're still married to her you know to 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 to, to try to be able to love her anyway but in a way that does not harm your integrity you know that's really really important what is best for you 
is also what's best for her. What's best for her is also what's best for you. There's a harmony or a symphony around what's best. And so we want to be able to see if we can find that so that we can come to a course of action that's best for her, best for you, best for your children. Is that, does that helpful? Is there a follow-up to that, Michael, at all? Or Okay, great. Well, that leads us to this question again that I, I think is really helpful um, or that, that dovetails right with this. And that is, could you comment on when and how to assert boundaries for one's own well-being while being charitable and witnessing to God? And this, again, we're going to get into in spades in episode 123 in October. But this question keeps coming up. How, how do I not lose myself in a relationship with a narcissist or somebody who's narcissistic? How do I not lose myself? How do I not just give in? But how do I still, um, how do I still relate in a loving way? How can I be Christian? How can I be Catholic in the fullest sense of the word when dealing with somebody uh, who in my life is an, is narcissistic? Yeah, I, yeah, that that is a, a complicated question. So I'm glad <laughs> you're going to be devoting so much time to it in the future. Yeah, so I, I think when it comes to boundaries with a, with someone that has narcissistic tendencies, just assume they don't know how to implement them, or if they do, they won't be. They don't know how to implement them regularly. So, in some sense, that means the burden, in some ways, is on you to be able to implement those boundaries in a consistent fashion. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not an easy kind of response to the question, but but it is something that's important. And I do recommend, you know, any type of change of boundaries, you're going to need some kind of external support for that, like a mentor to help you with that or a friend, a loved one, because you're going to you're going to find yourself feeling confused in the in the in the kind of reactions you might get mm-hmm. because the reactions you'll get will be disproportionate disproportionately large and extreme, probably compared to what you were asking for the boundary. So um, that, that would be kind of one thing. The other thing is um, if the narcissistic tendency is toward approval seeking and entitlement, we don't want you to shift to the other extreme and become subjugating and self-sacrificing, right? That's not the answer. <laughs> the answer is not to be the polar opposite <clears throat> because what that does is that actually feeds into the narcissism. Now, it may stop them from getting so angry and reactive, at least for a time period, but that's not the answer. You're still going to want to be assertive. So one way to think of it is on one extreme, you have kind of aggressive and passive aggressive approaches to communicating boundaries. And with what's interesting about both of those is that only one person, only one person matters in the dyad, in the two-person relationship, and it's not you. So if the other person's aggressive or passive aggressive, you're not really at the forefront of their thinking about how this should be done. On the flip side, if you become passive, and let's say that's more the subjugating, self-sacrificing, if you become passive, really only one person matters in that relationship too. And it's not you, it's the other person. So if you're passive, the other person matters more than you do. If, if you're aggressive or let's say they're aggressive or passive aggressive, you again don't matter. They, their opinion matters. So the only response that really seems to fit in terms of you know, kind of what Dr. Malinowski was saying about integrity needs and about respecting your own dignity and things like that 
is that you're in a relationship of equals and reminding yourself your relationship of equals just because they say things louder and more harshly doesn't mean they're more right. You're in this relationship of equals. So the assertive person hears and understands the other person's side at the same time, hears and understands your voice and what your concerns are. If you struggle with that, because let's say you're in a relationship where the narcissist has been the dominant figure, you're not used to probably noticing the desires of your heart. You're not used to paying attention to those promptings inside because you've been trained, so to speak, or there's, there has been a consistent kind of tendency in your, in your spouse to kind of tell you your desires aren't as important and they're not equal. So what I'll tell people sometimes is, as you're discerning how to set these boundaries, first begin with thinking about what are the desires of your heart? And, and as St. Augustine would say, you know, love and do as you will. So do in all things charity, but noticing what are the desires of your heart, paying attention to those as if the other person doesn't quite have an opinion just yet, right? But noticing it and then taking those, those views and those desires, those opinions, comparing them to the other person's desires, views, and, and opinions, and then trying to find some kind of you know, healthy middle ground that's not harmful and it's not implemented in a vengeful way or anything, but just literally out of love. Because by you doing that, it actually is within the realm of love to do it that way. Really like that, Peter. Thank you. And the one thing I would add is to be aware as you're introspecting, as you're paying some attention to your own reactions and to your own current state. And this is advice, not just for situations and working with folks with narcissistic dynamics, but to, to, to consider what is, what is the most loving or the best response available in my repertoire right now. And sometimes that may mean to withdraw from the situation. Maybe the best thing in certain situations in humility is to withdraw, you know, primarum non nocere, first do no harm. Now, there are times where if one of my children get under my skin, where the best thing I can do is to withdraw so that I, I don't do something that's harmful, so that I don't act out. So we need to be able to think about not what, what would I like to do or not what would, what would the saints do in this situation? Because you may not be at that level of sanctity, you know, and that may be a little uh, grandiose to think that you could just act as Saint, uh, you know, as Mother Teresa would or or, you know, or, 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 or some other saint that you admire and that you're trying to emulate, but to be really realistic about what kinds of things can I handle right now and to, and to, and to respond accordingly. And that's going to be very dynamic. That's going to shift. That's going to shift a lot, depending on, you know, how much integration you have in the moment. Uh, I would say where your parts are in that moment, how, how much recollection you have and so forth. So that gets easier as you practice it, you know? I like that, especially that Latin. That's impressive. I, I don't even know what that Latin. Yeah, no, I I agree. Like to take a developmental standpoint on boundary setting is really important. If you weren't, you know, to Dr. Manoski's point, where you're at now might be. I just can't go forward with this, and I just need some space. Like that mm -hmm. might be where you're at. And even if Mother Teresa of Calcutta could have done it differently, that she she may have but, but right now this is where god has placed you to grow in virtue he, you know the thing the thing about god he's he's um he's not going to sometimes he'll just give you infused courage let's say but a lot of times he'll just give you opportunities to mm -hmm. practice courage 
mm-hmm. practice those. Dis- and, and it might be the most courageous thing you can do is just to leave that situation right then and there. But that developmental standpoint is going to be important because um, what, how does, I, I think G.K. Chesterton says, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing badly, right? Because right, that's right. your first step. That's right, your right. first step in the developmental process of developing this key strength eventually. And, and, and Dr. Peter Martin, you and I have a, a psychologist friend, Dr. John Cadwallader, who is a, a, a psychologist in, in Indianapolis. And he, he's noted for playing the long game. He will play the long game. And I love that language. And I love to think about him playing the long game because we we're in these relationships, especially if they are with a spouse or with a parent or with a child, we want to be thinking about the long game. You know, that it's not just about what happens right now, but where does this set us up for some future interaction? You know, so so to be kind of considering that. And sometimes what's best for the long game is actually an estrangement for a period of time and actually withdrawing from a relationship so that there can be enough healing so you can get enough stability so that you can get enough groundedness, enough recollection enough healing to happen to be able to love the person to that to love that person in the future so sometimes that's just not possible if you are continually being re-injured or you're you're finding that you're just so caught up in that the, the dynamics of that relationship that that it's it's hard to get your feet you know under you sometimes this happens with children of narcissistic parents where they need six months a year to be able to cut off contact so that they can get enough formation so that they have a base from which to love the parents in a more in a more ordered way. So those are real radical decisions. I hope that those decisions aren't taken lightly or that they are uh and that there's like good counsel that goes with them from uh, from somebody that understands the the relational dynamics. So here's a here's a question came up when the narcissistic person sets rules for multiple little things or behaviors what is the best response so let's, <laughs> i'm getting the sense in that question that it's like too constricting and it's excessive you know kind of rules and little things like that what's the best response i guess i'm not sure what kind of relationship it is like mm-hmm. is it a parent child or is it a you know a spousal relationship or is it like in a religious life or in a diocese or something. Um, but yeah, any thoughts on that, Dr. Malinowski? Again, I would look at what's the, what's the function. If we can begin to read, what's the motivation, what's the good the person is seeking. She responded, what, sorry to interrupt. She oh, responded, yeah. it's a relationship of equals with another religious system. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I would look at what is the good that the other person is seeking by attempting to impose these rules or these conditions. And so I often think about, okay, what is the fear? What would happen if those things didn't happen? If they didn't go the way that the other person is hoping that they would go in terms of their, you know, their implementation? Is there, is there something that they're trying to avoid? Is it, for example, that uh, those things are irritants and the person is trying to avoid blowing up in the community? You know, and this is a way that they see that the belief is that if they have all of these things ordered on the outside, then there wouldn't be the reactivity on the inside. Well, then I might think about how can I help that person feel safer in relationship, you know, so that there's less to be focused on in terms of the the outside order, the outside rules. 
what's the control? What's the, what's the motivation beyond the control? When you find people that are trying to control a lot, I tend to think about that as really fear-based. And so then what's the fear? What will happen? You know, remember folks that are narcissistic, they are, they're trying to avoid a, a collapse, a, 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 a decompensation uh, where the wheels fall off the cart and they, they lose a sense of inner coherence and go into chaos. So a lot of times when you see this rigidity coming in, it's a, it's preferred to the chaos. Those are the two hallmarks of, of psychopathology, according to the founder of interpersonal neurobiology, Dan Siegel, you'll see the sort of, you know, rigidity and, and, and chaos. So the, the rigidity is often a way of trying to prevent the chaos from taking over. So those are the types of things I would be thinking about. But if you find that it's really hard to think about those things, then I would go back to your meeting your own needs. A lot of times people are trying to know how to deal with these situations in order to make it stop. And if you're if you're dealing with this organism this this kind of behavior in a way to make it stop, then you're really not focused on the other person's highest good. You're focused on sort of self-protection. And I would go back to, okay, how can you feel more safe? How can you be more grounded so that this sort of thing doesn't create as much reactivity? Because if you go into that situation reactive, the other person is likely to be reactive as well. And there's going to be the potential for a lot of conflict and polarizations. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all of that. Those are, those are well stated. Um, I, the one thing I might add to that is um, if they're setting all those little rules and boundaries, then um, the implication is that people are crossing those rules and boundaries mm -hmm. that really probably don't need there. And so not all cries of injustice are accurate. <laughs> and so a person who has a lot of, let's say, strong narcissism may see, you know, uh, at every turn, at every, at every, you know, path, they'll see unfairness. And they may, they may authentically feel like they're being treated unfairly, but it's not objectively so. So it's not that you have to really change necessarily your ways or or ask for forgiveness you know come to them uh, on your knees to ask forgiveness but just but just kind of and, and if you need a second set of eyes on that this is again this the confusion of this getting a second set of eyes um, is going to be important if you're wondering did i do something wrong here because it doesn't feel like that but this person keeps on setting these different rules and so forth so i have a question here have you done ifs work with narcissistic parts in clients. So have you done IFS work with narcissistic parts in clients or ideal parent figure work using God as the parent and attachment figure? What kind of treatment has been found most effective in your work with narcissism? If there's an intense fear of being loved, what is the best way to love those with that fear? And so this is a great question to lead us into the next episode, because some of you might be wondering, why hasn't he talked much about parts? Why hasn't he talked too much about systems thinking? You know, wh where's the IFS stuff? And that's what I'm going to be getting into in episode 120. That one's going to come out on Labor Day, the first Monday in September. So I'm going to be talking about how we can think about narcissism in a far more nuanced way in terms of parts, because as a little lead into that, I don't think that people are generally uniformly narcissist. I don't believe uh, in this single unitary homogenous monolithic personality. 
What I think happens with folks that are demonstrating narcissistic personality disorder, the symptoms of that or the criteria for that is that they have managers with strong narcissistic dynamics that are dominating their systems that they're blended with almost all the time. But those parts aren't the whole story of those individuals. And so we're going to be getting into that in episode 120. That's really what episode 120 is going to be about. How do we understand narcissism from a parts perspective? How do we understand it from a systems perspective? Because that is where I find so much hope in working with people because so much so much of the time we believe that what you see is what you get what's in the store window of folks with narcissism is all there is but the fact is there's a whole warehouse in the back of other parts other dynamics that are not being given voice because there isn't the sense yet of safety and security because there isn't the sense of feeling like their integrity will be sustained that their that their existence will go on if they really are seen heard known and understood such a conflict around that second primary condition of secure attachment from brown and elliot with folks that are narcissists on the one hand they desperately need to be seen heard known and understood but they're terrified that if you really did see them if you really did know them if you really did understand them you would reject them as parts of them have already rejected themselves. And so that's the really difficult thing is to manage that fear. So that's what I think about when I'm working with folks is how can I create enough conditions of safety so that there can be a little bit more opening to tolerating being loved? Because this whole endeavor of being loved is absolutely terrifying because with that comes the vulnerability. And with that comes the potential to be shamed, to be humiliated, to be destroyed inside. It really does feel like that. It feels like an existential threat. So as you think about what does it mean to, to love these folks, definitely think about the boundaries. Definitely think about making sure that your own needs are, are met, that you're in a good place, that you're stable. But then think about the, the safety and security needs. And the, the fear, the, the terror of being humiliated. And unfortunately, what happens is that folks that are allowing these parts that are really narcissistic in their, in their coping strategies to drive the buses, they get exactly what they don't want. They're more likely to set themselves up in, in, to be shamed or to be humiliated. And so that's the, that's the tragedy of this is that it tends to become self-reinforcing and self-perpetuating. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the way to work with them in some ways is to know that what you're getting is not really what's kind of driving the system underneath. You, you're going to encounter this kind of overcompensation, this the narcissistic kind of managers and perfectionistic managers. That's what you're going to receive on a regular basis. But underneath it is this kind of shame and this woundedness. And so, you know, as the saying goes, hurt people, hurt people. And so you're used to seeing how that hurt kind of drives the system, the shame, the hurt shame drives the system into overcompensation and perfectionism and criticism. But underneath it, like, like Dr. Malaski was saying, underneath that, there's a fragile person. Now, the challenge is, depending on what kind of narcissist you have, if you have the grandiose overt narcissist, the one that's very clear cut, you may have a tough time finding, helping them to find that shame. 
right? They may try to deny it and act like it's not there and, and so forth. Whereas the other side of the spectrum, the, the, the covert narcissist, they're gonna, maybe you'll see more of that kind of insecurity, but yeah, so it's complicated. And thank heavens we have six podcasts to kind of address it. <laughs> well, it has been a pleasure to be with you. It has been uh, really enjoyable, Dr. Peter Martin, to spend some time with you, to be discussing these things, to be uh, to be engaging with them, because I think they're so critical, critical for so many folks. Look out for episode number uh, 120. That'll be the next one. That will come out on Labor Day, as I said, the first Monday in September. We'll be addressing narcissism from an IFS perspective. And I'm really looking forward to sharing some of my perspectives on that with you to give you a much deeper and broader understanding of it from a parts perspective, from systems thinking and understanding some of the dynamics that go on from a, from a parts perspective within the, a person that's struggling with narcissistic dynamics. And then after that, and in, in, in mid-September, we will have an episode where I offer you an experiential exercise. That'll be in episode 121 when we have an experiential exercise to be able to go in and get in touch with your parts that might have narcissistic tendencies themselves or that have been in relationship with somebody that has narcissistic tendencies. We'll do a, an extended experiential exercise around that with some opportunities to debrief together and some opportunities for um, some questions and so forth. That episode will be recorded on Thursday, September 14th, 2023 from 7.30 p.m. to 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. And you can register for that Zoom meeting by going to our Interior Integration for Catholics landing page, which is at soulsandhearts.com slash IIC, soulsandhearts.com slash IIC, and get yourself that link. It's free. You can register, and it would be great to have you join us. Also, I wanted to let you know that we are in the middle of a series of weekly reflections. These come out by email every Wednesday on daydreaming. Daydreaming. I'm going to invite you to check those out. Daydreaming, imagination, fantasy, internal acts. And we're going to be looking at how fantasies can help inform us about what's going on inside. There's a whole multi-part series. If you're not registered with Souls and Hearts, you won't get this. I encourage you, go to soulsandhearts.com, click on our homepage on the blue button that says, Get Dr. Peter's Weekly Reflections in your email inbox every Wednesday so that you can track along with that because there's going to be some overlap with what we're talking about in this podcast series on narcissism. Finally, just an update. We have had an overwhelming response to the Resilient Catholics community. We are completing our onboarding process for the new cohort that cohort is now closed, but we encourage people, if you're interested in the Resilient Catholics community, to sign up for our interest list. You can do that at soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. And there's lots of information on that landing page about the community that's grown up around this podcast that is all about your human formation, learning to grow in love, learning to grow in relatedness, learning to consolidate and integrate identity. So I encourage you to check that out as well.
So, dear Dr. Peter Martin, are you willing for people to reach out to you by email? Would you be open to that? I am more than open, Dr. Malinowski. Yeah, please. <laughs> I, I'm happy to give you the uh, email address now. In fact, yeah, go ahead. Let's 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 have that for our listeners. Where can they reach you if they'd like to follow up with you? Definitely, Doc Martin RC at gmail.com. So D O C M A R T I N R C at gmail.com. So just a reminder, none of the things that we offer through Souls and Hearts are professional services. They are not clinical assessments. They're not psychotherapy. None of what happened in this podcast episode is constitutes that kind of professional clinical advice. What we're doing is more educational. So we're not able to offer you those services, but we can certainly discuss the themes that have come up, the concepts that have come up in, 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 in this episode tonight, episode 119, and to be able to continue the discussion. So if you'd like to take advantage of that, you're welcome to get in touch with Dr. Martin. My phone number, 317-567-9594. My email address, crisis at soulsandhearts.com. You're welcome to reach out to me, especially during my conversation hours, which are every Tuesday and Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. With that, I'm going to invite folks to unmute uh, as we invoke our patroness and our patron. We'll invoke our patroness and our patron uh, together. And if you'd be willing to unmute and add your voice to, to the rest of the voices uh, to be able to say those responses, that would be great. So, Our Lady. Our mother, untire of knots. Pray for, for us. Saint John the Baptist. Pray for us.